After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the latest of his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go, inquire of Baal the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, It is because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal the god of Ekron. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah, the Tishbet. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went, up to, he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of the hill, on top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of the fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal the god of Ekron, it is because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? The word of the Lord. This morning we're continuing our series, Good Trouble, The Strange Life of Elijah. We have seen God work powerfully 
in Elijah and through Elijah as he calls kings and the people of Israel back to worshiping the one true God. This week we're going to look at the short life and reign of King Ahaziah. So my outline is this. First we'll look at the misplaced faith and confidence of King Ahaziah. Then we'll look at God's fear-inducing judgment. And finally, we'll look at the humility of the third captain. My sermon in a sentence is this, very simple, only the Lord is God. So first, let's look at our story as we see King Ahaziah's misplaced faith. Our story really starts at the end of 1 Kings. Just as a side note, 1 and 2 Kings are really just one book. They were one story. The scrolls were too long, so they needed to be divided, so we have 1 and 2. Not sure why the division happened right here where it did, but it's what we have. Um, But really, our our story starts in 1 Kings 22, verse 52, or 51. Uh, But we'll start in 52. Ahaziah, his dad dies, so he becomes king in 52. It says, He did what was evil, in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. So the text here, the first thing we find out about King Ahaziah is that the text goes out of its way to remind us that he is under the influence of his parents, who were not good kings and queens. King Ahab is remembered as one of the most wicked, and Jezebel certainly is remembered as one of the most wicked uh, rulers in Israel. This is the first thing we find out about him. The second thing, in the very next verse, verse 53, he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. This comes to no surprise to anyone He had some of the the worst rulers, worst kings, worst parents in terms of following the Lord. So he becomes the kind of king that his father was. He saw worship of Baal growing up. So he worshipped Baal. His mother was a fierce advocate for Baal. So he serves as well. As he follows in his parents' footsteps, Uh, Spoiler alert, it doesn't go well for him. The very first thing we see in our text is that after his dad dies, Moab rebels. Baal is not strong enough to keep Israel's enemy at bay. The second thing we see in our text is the frailty of humanity. King Ahaziah falls through the lattice in his upper chambers. He fell so badly that he was stuck in his bed wondering if he will die. We're reminded of the frailty of our bodies. Sometimes I'm blown away at how incredible our bodies are. Often. No other thing can you just be like, well, if you just ignore that a little bit, it'll probably take care of itself. But you can sometimes, not a lot, but sometimes with your body. As any kid knows who skins their knee, or elbows, we call them summer knees at our house, they get better because God has created our bodies to heal themselves. It's fantastic. It's amazing. Our bodies are incredible. Other times, I'm blown away 
that we're all still alive. Because our bodies are so frail. In the winter, I'm particularly reminded about this. As my skin dries out and I'm just doing normal things and I move in a normal way, not a very hard way, and I bump my hand against a corner. Well, that very small bump turns into a cut because I was moving faster than I thought I was and my skin was dry. And all of a sudden, I just, I'm hurt. I didn't do anything special. Um, I'm also, I'm, I'm blown away at how many people die simply from tripping. They're not doing anything heroic. They're not going on adventures. They're just walking, and then they fall, and that, that's it. Our bodies are weak. This reminds us that we are not in control. Often we think that nothing can happen to me. I'm safe. I think that's a big lie that we believe. That, that we are in control. Uh, when we have it, we presume upon our health. The reality is, is that God can call us home at any time and in any way. For King Ahaziah's dad, in the chapter before, it was an archer who drew his bow at random. Just didn't know where he was aiming, just thought this would be a good idea. He shot, the arrow pierced King Ahab in just the right place, that it was a fatal blow. For King Ahaziah, it was weak lattice in his upper, upper chamber. Our, our bodies are frail. We are weak, we are dependent. But it seems to me, like here, God wasn't killing King Ahaziah but trying to get his attention. After all, he didn't die here when he fell. He could have. Our bodies are weak. He didn't. Our bodies can be resilient. Uh, But we are reminded that truly all flesh is like grass. As Ahaziah is contemplating the frailty of humanity and his body, we see his misplaced faith. He sends a messenger to ask a God who is a God not at all. He sends a messenger to Baalzebub, the God of Ekron. This was his best strategy, his greatest hope. This is what he truly believed would help him. This particular version of Baal, which means Lord of the Flies, is where his hope lay. Maybe this God had a good reputation of giving results or of answering Maybe there was some demonic power at play within it. We don't really know. But we do know that King Ahaziah placed genuine faith in this God, more so than he placed his faith in the one true God. As his messenger is going, God intervenes through Elijah. Look with me in verses 3 and 4. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up and meet the messengers of king of Samaria, Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Elijah asks this straightforward and revealing question. 
Is it because there is no God in Israel? Is that why you're going someplace else? I think we have to stop and ask ourselves a similar question. Where do we go when we're in trouble? Where do we turn to for help, for comfort, for relaxation? When we want something or need something, where do we go? When we are sick, do we just accept that whatever happens, happens? I think this is how I often operate. I either think, I'll just suffer through this small sickness, I'll get better, move on with my life, and go from there. Or maybe, if it's really serious, maybe I'll go see a doctor, and the doctor will give me medicine, and then everything will be better. It's embarrassingly rare for me to pray to God for healing for myself. For others, sure. For myself, I think I often will just go through it. This is what happens. People get sick, take some medicine, you get better. I am quick to go to those things to make me feel better. And I can be slow to go to the Lord. Now, please hear me. Medicine, doctors, our natural immune system, are they, they're absolutely graces from God. Don't ignore those. We should avail ourselves to them. But they should never be where we place our trust. Is it because there is no God in Israel that I go to medicine first? What about when you need comfort or relaxation? Where do you go? For me, it might be TV, or volleyball, or video games, or dessert, or lately trying to make something. I think this is where I'll find comfort. I can just escape for a little bit, not deal with something. I can unwind. Again, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing these things. I think God has given them. The problem comes when I begin to, or we begin to, look at those things as the source of our comfort, as the source of our relaxation. When my comfort comes from food or TV itself, instead of going to God first, instead of seeing those things as a provision from God, it shows that where my trust really is. Is it because there is no God in Israel that we look for comfort outside of the Lord? Or do we turn to worldly wisdom when we feel stuck in our work or in our finances? Do we turn to worldly systems of belief to explain how the world works? Systems that leave out the very God that created the world. Do we turn to our favorite news outlet to tell us what to think and how to feel about the world around us? Do we turn to them to tell us what is true? We must be careful not to put trust in anything more than the Lord of the universe. And of course, the God of the universe has made people in his image. And we are capable of uncovering truth and explaining the world around us. 
We are capable of creating things that comfort. We're capable of creating things that heal. But we must center ourselves on what is the most true, what is the most real, what is the most foundational. We must go to the God of all truth, to the God of the universe first. I want each of you to take a moment and think about the last time you were in need. I don't know what your need was, big or small, but I know you all had it. Where did your help come from? Where did you go? Did you acknowledge the Lord as the source of help? If you can't think about the last time, you're like, hmm, I don't really know when the last time I was in need was, then I want to suggest to you that maybe the idol of self-sufficiency is bigger than you think. My hope in doing this exercise here with you is, is not to make us all feel bad, but it's to attempt to honestly look at our lives and see who we depend on and where we rely to answer the question that Elijah asks. Is it because we believe there is no God here that we go elsewhere for our needs to be met? But it seems like here, God wasn't wanting Ahaziah, or God was wanting Ahaziah to turn to him. It seems like that's the whole reason for the accident. At the very least, to turn to him for healing or for information. But instead, he went to a different God. So Elijah pronounces judgment for Ahaziah. And Ahaziah wasn't very happy about it. You're not going to come down from your bed. You're going to die. He would not recover. At this point, I think the king has two choices. The first is that he could humble himself, repent, and then ask for forgiveness from the one true God. We've seen over and over, God is quick to forgive. God wants people to turn to him. The other option, the option that King Ahaziah takes this time, is to dig his heels in and get mad at the news that he received and get mad at the messenger who sent the news. So here, we're going to look at God's fear-inducing judgment, which I think can be difficult for some of us with our modern ears and eyes to hear. So let's look at it carefully. So Ahaziah sends men to go capture Elijah. Not just a few, but a captain and 50 men. He's thinking this is probably overkill, but it'll get the job done. Or maybe Ahaziah is afraid of Elijah. He's heard the stories, he knows the power, so he thinks, I'll intimidate him. I think maybe it's a little bit of both. He's going to intimidate Elijah and force him to come to him. But it doesn't work out so well for him. Let's look at 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, 
The king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of the 50, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. The first thing, I think it's a, a smaller thing, but it's worthy of noting that I notice here is where Elijah is. Elijah is sitting on the top of a hill. He's not hiding at all. This is a very different Elijah than we first encountered. Elijah is confident in what God has told him to do. He's not afraid of the king because he serves the king of kings. Elijah calls down fire and the captain and his 50 men are consumed. So King Ahaziah, in his infinite wisdom, sends another group to do the same thing. We see the same thing happen in verses 11 and 12. Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's orders. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire, the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. The king and his captains are trusting in their power to get things done. And it isn't working for them. But as we read this with our modern eyes, I'm guessing there are some of us that struggle with this. Seems like Elijah is acting on his own and has no care for the people that are around him. I want to remind us of two things as we might struggle with this. The first is that the men who were coming to arrest Elijah were not coming nicely and were not coming justly. They were coming on the orders of a king who is turning the people away from the one true God, who is going after idols, who is bringing God's judgment on Israel. They're coming in his authority. They were coming to commit evil, to arrest the prophet of God. It also seems that they were coming in arrogance and their own power. They say, the king says, come down. And then, come quickly. This is the king's order. All of this is done in defense of a king who is actively bringing God's judgment on Israel by serving other gods. The second thing I want us to rem remember which I think is the more important, is that Elijah is just a prophet. That means he's only a servant and messenger of God. Contrary to my childhood wishes, Elijah didn't have superpowers. He wasn't the human torch that could just make fire come from his hands. Elijah can do nothing that God has not ordained. This means that when Elijah called down fire, it was the Lord who answered and sent fire. This is the Lord's judgment. When we come across things about God that we don't understand or that we don't like, we must start with the assumption that he is right 
That either we don't understand what's happening or that we're looking at it with broken eyes. God is the authority. God is God, the King of Kings. But I want to suggest one reason as to why God may have acted this way at this time. We certainly know that God uses physical punishment to bring his people back to him. This happens over and over in Scripture. God's people rebel, so another foreign nation comes in and oppresses them. Oppresses them. So they cry out to the Lord, Lord, save us. Well, God is the one who brought that foreign nation in. God is the one that brought the oppression on them so that they would cry out to him, so that they would see him as God. As God was giving the law through Moses, he gave blessings and curses that accompany the law. And as Israel first came to the mountain where God was speaking, his very presence was so terrifying that the people of Israel said, we can't talk to God. Moses, you talk for us. They were afraid. God answers Moses and he says, they're right. They're right to have fear. God's holy presence induces fear in those without righteousness. And as God gave the law, the blessings were meant to encourage obedience as well as be the result of it. And the curses that came with it were meant to deter sin as well as be the consequences for it. Here we see God's physical and immediate action as both a consequence for sin and a deterrent for more sin. We also see this in the New Testament, in case we want to make the false argument that there are different versions of God. We see this in Acts 5, and I want to read this account for us quickly. Acts 5, 1 through 11, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter, the apostle, said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart, You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
When the young men came, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. These passages can be hard for us to hear, but they are here for us. We should listen. There is consequence for sin. God brings physical judgment. Elijah called down fire and consumed a hundred men. Ananias and Sapphira fell over dead for their lying. So how should we respond to passages like this? I want to argue that we should respond with humility. We should recognize God's power and holiness. So here's how the story of King Ahaziah ends. He continues his attack on Elijah with what seems like blind determination and utter lack of care for his people. By this time, word is out that fire had consumed a hundred people. Maybe we can give the second captain a little bit of the benefit of doubt. Maybe he didn't know. Maybe he hadn't heard. Maybe he didn't see. But certainly by the time the third captain, everyone understands what's going on. King Ahaziah doesn't seem to care. With the classic definition of insanity, he continues doing the same thing, hoping for different results. So he sends another captain and another 50 men. The difference here is not King Ahaziah. The difference here is the third captain. When he gets to Elijah, he approaches very differently. Let's look at 2 Kings, verses 13 and 14. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now, let my life be precious in your sight. This is what you do when you recognize the authority and power that someone holds. This captain doesn't come in the same way that the other two did. They came in the authority of the king and in their military might. This captain comes appealing to the mercy of Elijah in humility. Growing up, I had the best dog. Big transition, I know. This dog was very creatively named by my brother and I, Spot. (laughs) She was the best for boys that were growing up. She was an Australian sheepdog mix, and she had even more energy than we did. We would run and play until we were exhausted. The only thing really to complain, well, not the only thing, but the only thing that I'm going to talk about to complain about Spot was how she got along with other dogs. 
She wanted to show her dominance over any dog that she met. It didn't matter the dog, it didn't matter her ability. She wanted to see who was bigger. That is, until she met the neighbor's Rottweiler. This dog was massive. Right, if you've seen Rottweilers, this was, it was well-behaved, well-trained, and pure muscle. When Spot met this dog, all of a sudden, she wasn't so interested in seeing who was bigger. She rightly sat very still and allowed the Rottweiler to sniff her to his content and then moved on. She recognized, this is not a fight that I will win. This dog is bigger than me and could eat me. This captain comes in a similar position. He has all pride stripped away from him. Maybe he was very similar to the other captains. Maybe they were all good friends. Maybe he was just as arrogant as they were. But he is confronted with a hundred people being burned up before him. He is confronted with a power that his military might has no comparison to. He is confronted by the God of the universe. So he comes knowing exactly where he stands. Not in a position of power, but in a position, in, in a position of humility, appealing to Elijah to show compassion. When we go to God, we go in the same way. We go knowing that we have nothing to bring to him, that he should show mercy to us. Instead, we go to God with who he is. We can come to God appealing to his compassion, to his mercy, to his love, his grace, his forgiveness. We can do this because he has told us that's who he is. One commentator says it like this. There is nothing to be gained by contending with God. If we would prevail with him, it must be by supplication. If we would not fall before God, we must bow before him. And those are wise for themselves who learn submission from the fatal consequences and obstinacy of others. We should learn from those who have gone before us, both those who God has mercifully forgiven and of those who refuse to repent and experience his wrath. We must look at God for who he is, not who we would like him to be. Is God someone who is abounding in steadfast love, who is rich in grace and mercy? Yes, absolutely. We should go to him because of this. But is that all God is? Can we just say God is love and love is love and everything will be great? No. Because he is also a God who will by no means clear the guilty, 
but he will deal with sin. We should see his wrath and mercy together. And because of both, we should go to him. We see this most clearly on the cross. Crucifixion itself was meant to be a determinant, a determinant, a deterrent, there we go, of rebellion. It was a brutal form of execution, not only meant to punish criminals, but to humiliate and dehumanize them. So that anyone who looks on someone on the cross thinks, I don't want to do whatever that person did. And on the cross, we see God's fierce wrath poured out on Jesus as he hangs. At the same time, we see God's incredible love and mercy and grace. God is absolutely saying, this doesn't have to happen to you. Look at Jesus on the cross as he dies so you don't have to. You don't have to feel my wrath. Turn to me. Accept Jesus' death as your death. Accept his life as your life. Come to me and experience true blessing and everlasting life. How will you respond as you see God's fear-inducing judgment and his rich grace and mercy? Ahaziah mostly saw, most likely saw both of these in his lifetime. He most likely heard of the repentance of his father and the Lord relenting from judgment. He has certainly seen God's wrath. If he hadn't heard about the 400 prophets of Baal, maybe his parents heard, hid that from him because they wanted him to continue worshiping Baal. But he absolutely heard about the 100 soldiers who were burned by Elijah. Yet his response was to harden his heart and refuse to submit to God. Elijah goes with a third captain to the king. He listens to, to God who says, it's fine, go with him. So he does. But he repeats the exact same thing. Nothing has changed. Everything that Ahaziah went through, the death of the hundred men, and finally bringing Elijah in, it changes nothing for him. He has hardened his heart and said, there is no God in Israel. All his striving and his pride, all his power, all his authority, they amount to nothing before the Lord. We don't want to be like Ahaziah. He's not the one we emulate in this story. We want to see the grace and mercy and wrath and judgment of God and turn to him. We want to see his wrath and mercy meet at the cross and worship him. We see our sin, our idolatry, our pride, our self-sufficiency, our lust, our anger, our greed. We see that it rightly deserves punishment by the full wrath of God. And then we see it rightly punished as, it's, as God's wrath is poured out on Jesus. 
So we see God's wrath clearly on the cross. And at the same time, we see the overwhelming love of God on full display as Jesus takes the punishment that is meant for us and deserved for us, and he takes it willingly and lovingly. 